Survey Alpha and the team of Nebraska. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraph Studio. My guest on this edition of Fangraph Studio, making his weekly Monday appearance, his weekly Monday appearance in the program, managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron. Dave Cameron is the guest. Of particular note this week, the U.S. Department of Labor released an update of the regulations governing overtime pay recently, more or less doubling what is typically known as the white-collar exception, and also creating a situation with which Major League Baseball almost certainly will have to contend. Fangraphs contributor Nathaniel Gro wrote about it admirably, the electronic pages on Monday. I asked Dave Cameron specifically about how the changes in the law might affect the surrogate of the Fangraphs authors and readers in baseball, that is the bespectacled analysts and developers and analysts, the 100 or 150 of them who work in Major League front offices, how it might affect them and their pay. Whether or not he's subject to the white-collar exception, Mets outfielder Ioannis Cespedes almost certainly looks to benefit from a pay raise in the near future, if not on a rate basis, then certainly an overall one. Cespedes has raised his average launch angle and benefited from a corresponding increase in production. He's playing like a superstar and is likely to be paid like one in the near future. Cameron comments upon that. Finally, I asked Cameron to participate in an absurd experiment, perhaps a recurring one, perhaps an isolated one, called something along the lines of practical analytics, dollar per square foot, does not seem to be the best way to evaluate a home. What might be a more efficient way, I asked Dave Cameron, and he proposes a WOBA-like formula to estimate a property's value. Maybe the kitchen is worth 200 a square foot, and then the first bedroom is 150 a square foot, and the ah. second bedroom is 130 a square foot, and the third bedroom is 110 a square foot, and the fourth bedroom might only be worth 100 a square foot, and the fifth bedroom is only worth like 60 a square foot, because no one really needs five bedrooms unless they just have too many children. Nearly useful information like that to follow in this edition of Fangraphs Audio. What we find in the present moment, however, is a message from the sponsor. The sponsor is SeatGeek, SeatGeek.com. I don't think I'm telling tales out of school when I suggest that buying tickets online could be a, an experience marked by work and hassle. All one wants to do is find a ticket at a reasonable price. And yet a lot of sites out there seem determined to make that experience difficult. Not SeatGeek. What they do is to pull tickets from multiple sites. Just say aggregate them from all over the internet. So you, as the consumer, are able to save time and also get the best deal possible. And you can set alerts for games or concerts or whatever sort of event to which you would purchase a ticket. And SeatGeek will inform you when ticket prices fall. They also offer service befitting a site dedicated to baseball analytics, which is that SeatGeek assesses every ticket a grade based on value. So it's possible to exploit inefficiencies in the ticket market. Finally, SeatGeek removes all of the angoisse, what the French call angoisse from the ticket buying experience, by showing you the full ticket price from the beginning to the end of a transaction, unlike certain other sites, such as StubHub, for example. StubHub. And, for having endured this sponsor's message, listeners of Fangraphs Audio are entitled to a $20 rebate. Here's how to claim it. What you do is you download the free SeatGeek app, you go to the settings tab and click add a promo code, you enter the promo code FANGRAPHS, that's F-A-N, G-R-A-P-H-S. SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. Download the free SeatGeek app and enter promo code FANGRAPHS today at your nearest leisure. With which we have reached the end of the sponsor's message and turn now to a conversation with Dave Cameron. What is it? It's FANGRAPHS Audio. Who does it feature? That same managing editor, Dave Cameron. And what does it begin? Right now. I reverted even 
meant. So I'm probably using like the original edition of Skype until right now. It's not that interesting. I've, Wouldn't I, the original version of Skype be like styrofoam cups with a wire in between? The actual program Skype. I see what you're saying, Dave. I see what you're saying. You mean telephonic type yeah, communication yeah, between yeah, humans? Yeah. yeah. All right. Hey, listen. <clears throat> I'm going. I would like to. I would like to float the suggest. Well, no. I'm going to. This is going to be an experiment. We're about to conduct an experiment. It might be a one-off experiment. It might be something that recurs during each of our conversations, which is this. Something I would like to call, or I think might best be called, practical analytics. Practical analytics, maybe applied analytics, but something like practical analytics, or maybe okay. practical sabermetrics. Anyway, uh, part of what we do at Fangraphs, of course, is to uh, attempt to measure things, measure value objectively. Yeah. Right. Um, and what I would like to do is take that same sort of approach to. Uh, the um, to items that might concern people on a daily basis. Okay. And I've been thinking about this recently, right? When one is searching for homes, as I have done recently and as you might be doing in the near future. I, uh, I have been doing as well, yeah. Sure, I don't want to pry too deep. That's yeah. but but, uh, but one typically sees prices for homes listed in uh, in terms of on a rate basis as in terms of price per square foot. Yeah, dollar per square foot, yeah. Dollar per square foot, right. Yeah. However, I think that this is not the ideal way. It's not terrible, but it's not the ideal way because <clears throat> because every home, every home, of course, uh, if it, uh, you know, I mean, most homes will have, they all have, have share a certain things that are vital, right? Yeah. Like a kitchen. Right. And a bathroom. Yeah. And a furnace and heating. And there has to be some sort of baseline, some sort of like, like a figure that might be represented by like the intercept in an algorithm. Does that make sense? Yeah, essentially the there are a few rooms that are significantly more important than a, than the additional room and adding more rooms does not add a linear dollar per square foot to your house. Okay, right. So so this is good too because I you know that I'm not at all trained in the field of economics. Right. And so I do not necessarily when we are doing cross uh, disciplinary work or interdisciplinary work we're inter- using economic concepts all right i don't know uh, i'm not always necessarily well acquainted with but you've said a couple things which are valuable things i recognize but would not necessarily have been able to employ just like linear <laughs> linear say it again well the marginal additional value of your home is not linear in that if you add it you know 10th 11th 12th room to your house those rooms are not valued the same in terms of price per square foot as the first second third fourth rooms Right, exactly. Yeah, I mean the first room is really vital. Really, super important. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Most, uh, most, most houses, most apartments have a bedroom. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's a. I would say the first room is almost always the kitchen, right? Like the, you basically don't have a dwelling if you don't have a kitchen. Right, you or have at like least some sort of cooking cooking, cooking area. It doesn't have to be like a full-on kitchen, but you need like somewhere to prepare food. Right, and you do need some sort of heating apparatus as well. Right. Exactly. And, 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 and if a home, if a home, you could say, well, this home costs two hundred dollars a square foot, but it doesn't have a heater. Yeah. And if you live, you know, above what the forty-fifth parallel or whatever, then, <laughs> then you'll be upset. Right. If right. you like, I think realistically, if we were to say like, uh, we we had a a house or a room or whatever without some kind of cooking uh opportunity, mm-hmm. you essentially have a hotel. <laughs> That's yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Hotel. Yeah. And you're going to be there's going to be a, there's going to be a lot of extra expenses because right. you're not going to be preparing you make, you guess you could get a hot plate 
Right. Anyway, so so what we're looking at is a different way of calculating marginal value, right? Um, because the marginal value is not it, it is not uh, not to be assessed liter- uh, non-linearly. It's yeah. not uh, non-linear. So what? Like, how would you do that essentially? What would be your strategy? So it's interesting that you bring this up because you didn't know this, but the reason we I was like slightly late to this recording was because that I was on a phone call with my realtor while we were discussing what price to list our house at because a house in our neighborhood uh, went on the market last week at mm-hmm. a uh, significantly lower price per square foot than we want to list our house for, but it's also much larger. So it's like, uh, oh, you know, 700 square feet larger than our home. And Pardon so, me? Say it again? It's like 700 square foot larger than Oh, I think you said 7,000 square feet. No, no, feet. 700. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If it was 7,000 square feet larger <laughs> than my home. Uh, I would either have a very tiny home or I would <laughs> yeah. live in a neighborhood of massive proportions. Right. All right. Uh, so, so, and so you're dealing with this exact problem. Unbe- we, we were like, 20 minutes ago, we were trying to figure out like how much more can they charge for their home based on 700 extra square feet that may or may not matter because like realistically in North Carolina, you can get a pretty large home for a very small price relative to the rest of the country. Um, so, you know, we're, like our home is is nice and has all the rooms you would want and has heating elements and cooking mm-hmm. opportunities, uh, but their house has just larger versions of those. And so, how much more would someone pay for a bedroom that is, you know, an extra hundred square foot, or to have a fifth bedroom, or to have you know uh, a walkout basement, or these things that they have that we don't have that most people just don't really need? Right. And of course, that doesn't take into account at all. Uh, the materials we talked right. about flooring for example and finishings finishing yeah what is how what does your backsplash look like right yeah and the kind of the layout of your house I mean, sure. you have a huge house with a weird layout and it feels like a lot of the space isn't usable okay so what's the what was your verdict because i assume that you had opinions on this uh and probably your realtor your realtor yeah. did too yeah, so I would suggest to anyone living in like the San Francisco area or the New York area uh, should probably stop listening to this podcast before I say that the price per square foot in, in our neighborhood is somewhere between 80 and $120 a square foot, okay, yeah. which I guess in San Francisco, it's probably like $8 million to $1.2 billion a square foot or something. Uh, so yeah, land is very cheap out here. Um, so the home that we are kind of competing with uh, just listed at 95 a square foot, and we're going to aim for like 115 a square foot, I think mm-hmm. is kind of what we're, we're targeting. So... We are essentially, our decision was, yes, they have more space than we do, uh, but their space is not as nice as ours in terms of, you know, upgrades. We we bought a foreclosure and have significantly remodeled it over the last few years, so everything's just newer. Um, so what we decided is that their advantage and quantity of space is actually swamped by our quantity and qu- our, our quality of the space. Right. So we're actually going to list at a higher price or something very close to their price, uh, even though they have... Uh, you know, more room than we do. Yeah. So, uh, so uh, how how would one create an algorithm essentially to explain this difference? So, I think if you look, at, I thought about it in terms of like a Wobo formula, right? So, like, okay. Wobo says, you know, a run, uh, you know, a single's worth this much, a double's worth this much, a triple's worth this much, a home run's worth this much, and then you just kind of uh, add them all together um, in, in a in a certain formula. What you would essentially do in in this housing idea is that you would say. You know, maybe the kitchen in like North Carolina parlance is worth 200 a square foot, and then the first bedroom is 150 a square foot, and the oh. second bedroom is 130 a square foot, and the third bedroom is 110 a square foot, and the fourth bedroom might only be worth 100 a square foot, and the fifth bedroom is only worth like 60 a square foot because no one really needs a five bedrooms unless they just have too many children. Yeah. Uh, 
And so then you just like uh, assign declining values to each additional room that doesn't have as much value. Because I think, you know, like if you look at the, the normal American family that has whatever, uh, 1.7 children, most people could make do with three bedrooms and a fourth bedroom would be a luxury and a fifth bedroom just means you just got an extra room to cool down or something. Um, so you're dealing with a, a significantly smaller part of, the, part of the population that needs five plus bedrooms mm-hmm. uh, so that those rooms are just going to be uh, of diminished value because to a to a normal sized family of four you can get get by with three bedrooms just oh fine. yeah yeah but I like so I like the woba idea I think that I think that works because it's flexible it has a nice flexibility to it right and yeah. it's you know, modular I mean you could you can change it based on the years and like you know if we were in like the farming community where there was like every family had fifteen kids then you know those additional bedrooms would go up significantly right okay that's good do you think here's a question um. So one unique thing about housing, right, it's also true of free agency, is that it really only – there's only one buyer needed, right? If you have a free agent and the, the agent says, well, we're going to sell them – you know, we're going to sell your services for this amount. Yeah. It's possible that it, – it's possible. It's not always likely. It's possible that 29 teams would not be interested, but a 30th would be and would be willing to pay the price. Right. Or at least when uh, the other 29 teams would not be willing – to purchase the services at that price. And the housing I think you, is, could, you could talk about Chris Davis as a, maybe like a guy that the Orioles were very interested in resigning that through the other 29 teams had little to no interest in paying what right. he wanted to pay paid. Right. And the Orioles, and, and, and you could argue certainly Chris Davis. And then, and then, you know, it's probably even more true of like latter day Derek Jeter, right? Where Derek Jeter, Derek Jeter was worth much more to the Yankees than he was to every other team. Sure. Absolutely. Right. And so you have that too. And of course, Housing, you hit, you're, you have, you're appealing to even more people, and you have an even, I think you could say you have like an even more unique product. Is that possible? Because, well, something along those lines. But there are more people, I guess, is the point. And so you might find someone who, who develops an attachment to your property for no, you know, for reasons that no one can explain. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question is like, what is the substitutability of homes? Is like, uh, you know, so in our neighborhood, there's, uh, currently two homes for sale. And we know of like two or three more coming on the market, yeah, roughly around the same time as we'll go on the market in, in another month or so. Uh, so it's possible that at some point in a month there could be five or six homes in this neighborhood on the market, but they are different homes. Uh, you know, ours is, uh, was recently in a disastrous state and is now hopefully in the nicest state of the bunch because of the, the improvements we made after we bought it as a foreclosure. Um, and then, you know, you have some homes that, uh, this neighborhood was constructed in 1992, and I believe one of the sellers is like an original buyer. Like they bought it as new construction 24 years ago, and so they, if they haven't done any updates since, their home will probably be quite different than ours. And so uh, then you get into the question of like how much are people willing to pay just for the neighborhood itself versus the home? And and I think for us, we basically bought into the neighborhood and said, you know, this house needs a lot of work, but this neighborhood's amazing. We're just going to buy what's available in our price range in this neighborhood and try and make it what we're wanting versus if you said the home itself is the thing, then you'd have very low substitutability and you're like, well, this is the only one of these homes that I can get. And those other homes might be in the same neighborhood, but they're not the same house. Uh, I, th- I tend to think from my perspective, buying into the neighborhood uh, is not a, not a bad idea. And then you'd have a very high substitutability of homes where you can say, look, I don't really care which home I get as long as I'm living in that geographic region. But if you decide to list your home at a price 
like price per square foot that's higher than other people's, then you yeah. want people who will, will have some investment in the home itself. Absolutely. So I'm appealing <laughs> to the non-rational buyer who's going to look <laughs> or, at what the, Or a the, different set of... Or sure, yeah. Someone with small kids who doesn't want to come in and do any fixing and says, oh, yeah. look, this home has recently been remodeled, hopefully to something that I like. Um, and so therefore I don't have to worry about coming in and making a bunch of you know, construction changes and, mm-hmm. uh, calling a contractor and, and doing all the things that might be involved with buying a home that, you know, hasn't been touched in 25 years. Do you think Scott Boris would be a talented seller's agent, a seller's realtor? Yeah, probably. I mean, I think, uh, I think Scott Boris's primary gift in baseball is figuring out the right person to talk to. Like he has gotten really good at uh, developing relationships with irrational buyers, which is owners. So when baseball <laughs> operations got smart and stopped listening to his propaganda and said, no, these are ridiculous claims that you're making, uh, he found somebody who didn't find those claims so ridiculous. So I think Scott Morris wouldn't necessarily be the guy you'd want at like an open house where some guy like, you know, random people just wandered in the door and he had to give those random people a sales pitch. Mm-hmm. But he would be really good at like finding some really wealthy local buyer and been like, sir, you need a ninth home. Eight homes is just not enough for you. Mm-hmm. You need a ninth place to store your stuff. Yeah. Well, uh, becoming acquainted with wealthy people ha- doesn't have a lot in the way of downsides, I'm pretty sure. Uh, I don't think it does. Well, I mean, you could... Uh, I mean, sometimes they have no moral compass, but also... Right. <laughs> but, but that doesn't. I mean will say I've seen the Wolf of Wall Street, and you know I, I would <laughs> hang out with those. But that doesn't mean that you want. That doesn't mean you want to be. Friend. I'm saying to to have a working acquaintance with wealthy people. Uh, right. Well, I solved this problem by getting to know you. So <laughs> I only <laughs> pretend to be the product of wealth. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, all right. So that's right. So you so essentially coming out. You're developing a woba. A woba for real estate. I mean, I'm not doing it personally, but right? I no, could. No, but, but you did. You did like a. Uh, you essentially, in your in your decision, you you did to. It seems like decide to, to look at the to look, to come up essentially with a modular pricing scheme. Yeah, I mean, in deciding how to price our house, we kind of had to rationally decide what's the marginal value of each room in the house, and then and say, okay, you know. How do we come to a, what we think is a fair dollar per square foot price based on the rooms we actually have without the rooms we don't have compared to the other houses? Okay. All right. That's great. This, I, I appreciate this. That has been – I think we'll call that practical analytics. Does that make sense? Sure. Practical I think uh, other people are going to call that a random discourse on not baseball. Well, no, I, but I think it. what it does is it uses the same tools. It uses sure. the same tools but for a different subject because honestly I don't think the content – I don't know all the time that the content matters, right? Because sometimes this exercise is pleasing. The nice thing about baseball is that it provides so much data. And I'm not just talking numeric data, although that's obviously a big part of it, but it, it provides a lot of qualitative data too, right? Yeah. I mean, that's what we learn all about beards from baseball. We learn all about um, masculine behavior from baseball. Not always, not that we Positive. love it always, but it, we learn about it. Yeah. There's, you just, you're, because it's on every day, there's and it's on. It's three hours long. It's constantly producing raw material for us to contemplate. And one of those things is uh, it does is you know we say well how do we decide who the best hitter is? Well, Woba is a great way to do it. And then 
then we look at our own lives, and here we have raw material in our own lives that could that's probably more important to our own personal experiences than than baseball is. At some yeah. point, All right. yeah. I think uh, if if someone came up to me and said, "You helped me enjoy baseball," that's great. If someone came up to me and said, "You helped me learn logic and math," I would appreciate that even more. Yeah, it has it has wide applications, wide ranging applications, and so yeah. we're discussing it right now. Um, Here's a here's a topic upon which we don't. We, of course, we talk about players a lot. We talk about front offices a lot. Uh, this perhaps has something to do with the latter. But Nathaniel Rowe wrote a wrote a post for the site Monday today uh-huh. about the app about the relevance of new overtime laws. Um, the the uh, what am I saying? The application of those laws, the the relevance of those laws. Sorry to baseball employees. Yeah, to Major League Baseball, yeah. To ma- Major League Baseball employees, right? And if I'm, I think I can categorize it, right? Is it typically you know, there's been a white collar exemption for overtime loss? Uh, to some extent, yeah. I mean, that's that's generally what it's called, yes. Right. Yeah. And but uh, before, or previously, the threshold was a, was in the low twenties, twenty thousand, twenty three thousand, I think. Right, and now it's almost roughly double that, yeah. Uh, well, not now, but as of this December. Uh, so basically, the administration just announced that they're going to be raising the exemption uh, to 47000 uh, by the end of the year. Okay. <clears throat> now, 23000 um, is not necessarily a lot. I, I don't know if that's necessarily where – where is the poverty threshold currently? Uh, I think it's currently like $15,000 for an mm-hmm. individual. Okay. So, but so not a lot above it, right? And I think you could argue because white collar does also imply some – there is some sort of – there are class implications there. And it's hard, it's hard to rocket up the America's class system, uh, if you're making $23,000 a year. Yeah. And cool. I think it should be stated like this is salaried employees only. Hourly employees, uh, this doesn't apply to. So if you're a salaried employee, that means you're at least, uh, you know, probably in some kind of job where you have some amount of security and, um, you know, potentially have some skills in order to get to that salaried position. Right. So, this is a, again. I ask a lot of naive questions, but the implication of salaried positions, I suppose there are a number of them, but one of them tends to be right. There's like an implicit understanding we trust you to do your work. Yeah, correct. That's one of the main reasons you would switch from hourly to salary is you would say, look, you know, we're not going to keep track of your hours anymore. We're going to assign tasks to you, and you're going to be responsible for the completion of those tasks rather than we're just going to pay you for your time. Right, and the, there's also a, a a benefit for employers too, right? Which is if if tasks take a bunch of time, then there's no additional pay, right? But that's what that's what this new. Um, I mean, hour, hourly pay comes with a, a disincentive to work, essentially, and this is like <laughs> one of the things you essentially run into with like contractors or mechanics or people who do charge significant hourly rates. Is like you know they make more money if that you know project takes ten hours than three hours. So if they can complete it in three and goof off for seven, all the best for them. Right. Although if they if you catch them goofing off, yes, then you know then and you have a way of I guess sharing that information with other people. Although they probably, I mean, they will probably not share. You don't see a lot of testimonials on like an electrical contractor site to the effect that, well, I liked the gym except he was goofing off for seven hours. (laughs) Right. Yeah, it's definitely one of those things where it turns the incentive for the worker if they're hourly into producing as little as possible on an hourly basis, where mm-hmm. if you're salaried, 
then, you know, you, that benefit goes away and now you just say, okay, maybe there's still some benefit to me in order to like, if I work too productively, I'll just get more work. So I don't, I still don't want to be super productive, uh, because I don't want to have my, my workload increased, but at least you're not getting paid more for working less. Okay. Right. Now, um, this could this as as grow notes this could affect a lot of different types of people i guess the the first group of people about whom i'm interested is one we my fault uh, it's it's my fault is we don't talk about a lot is the uh, this sort of essentially the surrogate of the fangraphs author the fan, probably a bunch of fangraphs readers in baseball front offices which is the the nerd analysts uh we don't talk about them a lot i feel like we talk about we, I don't know staff to some degree. yeah but there aren't like a lot of I mean to some degree like their their accomplishments are necessarily I mean as soon as they're hired they're like hidden right their accomplishments are right are kept secret so we don't yeah. necessarily know I mean what at this point doing. we're still referencing articles Mike Fast wrote like three years ago we don't have any idea what Mike Fast or like Josh Cole like I I routinely think like probably once a month about a, a pitch effects piece that Josh Kalk wrote right. When he looked at why Ted Lilly might be effective, despite the fact he doesn't <laughs> throw the hard, or why he throws high fastballs, because it comes in at the same trajectory as his curveball. And so those two pitches, and he had a really cool visual for it. And I think Josh Kalk is what, still in the Rays front office? Yeah, he's been there for, I don't know, probably pushing six, seven years at this point. Right. So obviously there's, in baseball front offices, especially the more progressive ones, and there are more of those than there have been previously, there is, there's incentive, there's cause for everyone to at least be acquainted with analytics, but that doesn't mean that there aren't people who, I mean, there are, are certainly people who are dedicated um, analysts. Well, what do they run right now over, uh, in terms of 30 organizations, how many people do you think might be described as a, as an analyst or something of that sort? I mean, it's grown a lot this year. There was a huge hiring uh, uh, surge this winter for analysts. That's uh, weird, as I, I was, I check my email every day. Over the winter, and I didn't no receive. One, no one reached out to you. Uh, yeah, I think there was not so much of a surge for people who were looking for fringe prospects in A-ball. Okay. But, right. uh, you know, I think there actually are some analysts who are doing work not terribly different than what you've done with, you know, finding, like, the junior Garas of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yeah, no one – no, maybe they've listened to the podcast and were like, that guy, we can't handle him. <laughs> no, we don't want him around. That's fair. Okay, that's fair. <laughs> uh, I would say, so, like, given the hiring surge this winter, my guess would be the average team has somewhere between three to five uh, people working in their analytics department, which would include some kind of manager and sometimes several managers, depending on how long they've been doing it, uh, overseeing probably one or two analysts where that's going to be their actual position and they're kind of, like, running the, the work and then one or two developers, which are going to be guys building databases uh, or trying to integrate scouting reports and video and data into one comprehensive unit or working with the StatCast data in order to try and, um, you know, turn it into a manageable size. So you're going to have essentially like one or two technical guys, one or two analysts, and then uh, someone overseeing them. And, and then, in you know, uh, maybe organizations like the Dodgers or Yankees, you'll have, you know, two to three times that many. Right, right, right. Do you think there's a do you think there's a strong correlation between payroll, for example, which is kind of our best um, our best proxy for you know the the amount of the amount that a team is willing to spend? Is there a correlation between payroll and the amount a team pays 
for analysts or how so many there, else? There didn't used to be. I mean, the teams that used to be staffed up the most analytics wise were the Rays, the Indians. Oh, of course, uh, yeah, of course. Really. Yeah. The teams that didn't have payroll, they were saying, hey, look, this is an area where we can spend money and get a higher return of in, return on in, investment. Uh, lately, I think the, uh, the rest of baseball has said, hey, if they're getting a good ROI on their spending there, we can too. So now you have, you know, the Dodgers and Yankees and some of these like large payroll, large resource teams have essentially caught up and figured out, you know, like there's a real value to be gained from um, paying nerds and bringing in more nerds and, and bringing in the best nerds they can. Uh, so now the correlation is, is strengthening. You still have some teams, uh, that don't have huge analytics departments despite, you know, really large payrolls. Uh, the Red Sox probably being one of them. Um, you know, they're known as kind of, or were known as a, a very strong analytical team, uh, before, uh, they swapped out Dave, uh, Ben Sherrington for Dave Dombrowski, but they don't actually have like a huge staff of analysts, uh, or a big technical department. Um, and, and, you know, they have one of the highest payrolls in baseball. Right. Is there, wait, is there like a, um, in terms of the marginal gains a wealthy team can gain over a, a less wealthy one, is, is there something like this concept we were just discussing in terms of square footage? Like at a certain point, it's, I mean, are the gains a team can, can uh, experience, are they linear as well? By, uh, by having, by having a proprietary knowledge or something of this sort? Yeah, so I would say that you, you would have probably nonlinear growth in that the first analyst is going to be worth more to you than the 12th analyst. Mm-hmm. Like, so if you have nobody and you're the Phillies from a couple of years ago, there's a huge value to like getting one guy in the room who has some credibility and some voice who's like, we shouldn't do the Ryan Howard contract. Right. Right? An, ability, like an ability to communicate it in a right. way that's not annoying, right? And be listened to. I mean, mm-hmm. that's the main thing. Like, You can have an analyst on staff, but if no one's paying any attention to what he says, it doesn't matter and it has no impact. But to get someone in the room, in the decision-making room, who actually has a voice and has some impact on the decisions being made, that first guy is super valuable. And then each additional guy adds some value but it's not like that you're going to have six nerds in the room and then the scouts or the GM or whoever's going to be like, well, I'm outvoted six to one. I'm just not doing this anymore. <laughs> uh, you don't get extra power at the table necessarily just by having more people. Um, so you can maybe do more work. You can do more interesting research. You can have the guy in the room or the guys in the room who are kind of the analysts helping make the decision have better information and make a more compelling case. But in most cases, you're not going to get the same values you are from that first jump where you get someone into the room to kind of – you don't provide a sandwich check and be like, the Ryan Howard contract is a terrible idea. Let's run away from this one. And then, and then I wonder, there's always these stories you hear from universities where like, you know, Columbia will go to northeast or, you know, northwestern and hire the entire sociology department or something, right? Sure. And did, has something like that happened in baseball, do you know? Uh, so I think in general that's limited because – what usually happens is when one employee goes to another organization uh, and gets a you know a promotion, he's not allowed to poach his entire department. So probably the most recent example of this would be like Billy Epler when he left uh, the Yankees to go to the Angels. Uh, I think the Yankees let him take two people with him. So he was not allowed to just take the entire Yankees analytical department and say, all right, we're going west, boys. Um, so there's limits on uh, kind of the number of, of – uh, your coworkers that you're allowed to poach when you go for a promotion. Is that something that would have, that, is there, would there have been verbiage to that effect in a contract that Epler signed originally, or how would that number have been agreed upon? 
I think as far as I know, it's mostly just a gentleman's agreement. Um, so uh, basically what has to happen is for someone to receive an opportunity to interview for another position with another organization, that organization has to give approval, right? So like the Yankees had to let Billy Epler go interview for another position because he was under contract with the Yankees and they were essentially letting him out of his contract to go work for the Angels. Um, so as a stipulation of the agreement, they probably said, if you take this job, we will, you know, we'll let you go interview for this job. And if they offer it to you, that's fine. You can take it, but we're not going to give approval for you to interview more than one or two other people from this organization. Uh, and if you can't interview them, it's pretty hard to hire them. Right. And is one of the, I mean, is one of the incentives for the Yankees in that case, just the fact that they are broadcasting to other potentially, other qualified potential employees that they're not going to be huge dicks about it? Yeah, I mean, that's like kind of one of the, like the perks of the job is that, hey, you work for an organization that will allow you to go elsewhere for a promotion and is not going to, right. uh, force you to stay. I mean, I think we've seen recently at like the executive level, the Orioles basically didn't do this with Dan Duquette. They said, hey, we don't really care that the Blue Jays want to give you team president. You're our GM. We're not going to let you out of our contract. You can't even interview for that position. Um, that's, a, that's, so, that's, uh, that's uncommon though, isn't it? That's, yeah. I mean, I think that it was not a good look for the Orioles to, basically refused to allow someone who wanted to leave to do so. And they mm-hmm. took some PR hit for it. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that that was the wrong call. They could have said, hey, look, the value to Duquette is worth the PR hit that we're going to take. But in general, people want to work for an organization where they will be allowed to pursue other opportunities for promotions if, if they come up. Right. But even was it even when – I mean, of course, they've had success over the last few years. But was it when Dan Duquette originally was hired as GM of that team, wasn't he like – wasn't the he like only a, guy that could get to take the job? Yeah, right. I mean, he was like fifth choice, wasn't yeah. he? Like basically, they couldn't get anyone in baseball to work for them because Peter Angelos' reputation for meddling. Right. And then yeah. Duquette took the job and you know did a pretty good job with the Orioles overall. And then and then Duquette meddled or Angelos meddled in Duquette's ability to leave. Yeah, reverse almost reverse meddling. No, you're doing such a good job. Now you're not allowed. Yeah, now you're, right. now yeah. you're trapped here. Yeah. Um. Okay. Oh, so oh yeah. So in terms of the, the being back to the original point though, we're talking about the um, the relevance of all this, or, or I guess this in the context of Nathaniel Groh's article about overtime laws. Right. Uh, I don't. I'm not asking you to reveal specifics, but will a will a forty seven thousand dollar cap is that a will that apply differently than a to these analysts at a twenty three thousand dollar cap? Yeah, I mean, so it's not a cap, really. It's almost a floor, right? So, like, oh yeah, um, yeah, it's true. So, I think uh, what's probably going to happen is that teams are going to say, okay, we have a few options here. We have these analysts on staff making, you know, say thirty-seven or something. Like, I think, uh, from my understanding, uh, entry-level salary for a baseball operations uh, employee and most with most of the teams is in the thirties. Okay. Uh, some of them it might be in the high twenties, some of it might be in the low forties, but it's somewhere in there. It's and it's almost almost certainly with most teams below 47. So you probably have, I don't know, probably 50 kids or, you know, 50 employees of these teams making somewhere south of this 47 line working way more than 40 hours a week because baseball operations staff works somewhere between 70 and 100 hours a week, uh, depending on the time of year. Um, so your teams are going to say, okay, look, our options are we can just give them each a raise up to the 47,000 minimum, whatever the, whatever the, the penny is that we can get above this line. Uh, we'll give them that, and then we'll just keep working them just as much as we had, and we'll just incur additional expense. And if we've got, you know, three or four analysts who were below that line, this costs us an extra twenty or twenty-five thousand dollars a year. 
you know, that's like the cost of a waiver claim or a Rule 5 pick or something, right? Like this is – these are rounding errors for Major League Baseball teams. This doesn't matter to their bottom line at all. That's the easy way out of this is just give these kids a raise. The question is, if they do that, then how does it inflate the cost for the rest of their front office? Because say you had a manager making 50 and now, uh-huh, you know, yeah. his his kids working for him were making 35 but now they're making 47 Is he going to be okay making $2,000 more than the kids that he just hired? Probably not. So now you could potentially have wage inflation throughout front offices um, as they try and create some sizable separation between you know, supervisors, managers, executives, um, and it could go all the way up the chain and you could see front office salaries significantly increase uh, uh, as a result. You could also see teams say, you know what, this just isn't worth it to us. Uh, we're going to call all these part-time jobs or make them hourly and we're just going to hire like nine of these kids and instead of having one kid come in and, you know, run numbers all day in the office from nine to five and then stick around and chart the game and do the video and not go home till midnight, maybe we'll just make that two jobs. Okay. All right. Well, is, and one interesting thing is, as Nathan Groh noted, is um, because one possible option he suggested was for teams simply to ignore uh, yeah. the new law. However, I think there have been a, he Groh noted that at least four teams have been the subject of uh, some sort of inquiry in terms of yeah. payment. Right. So it's not so it, the labor. What is it? Department of Labor. Yeah. They have they have an eye on on baseball. Yeah, and I think it would be silly for Major League Baseball to attempt to you know save some tens of thousands of dollars per year per team. So even at the league level, we're talking maybe like a you know million dollar increase or something like that per year, mm-hmm. which isn't nothing. But like this is a league with nine billion dollars in revenues. Like uh, even a million or two million dollars a year in extra expenses for front office staff. Not a dramatic increase for the league as a whole. For them to risk, you know, the negative PR and the, um, you know, the costs of defending themselves in court and potentially having to open up their books, uh, it just doesn't seem worth it. Like, why would you risk a lawsuit for, you know, some tiny fraction of a percentage of your annual income? Right. Okay. Uh, last thing, because you've uh, very close to here to fulfilling your obligation. In terms of pay increases, uh, one person who might be the recipient of one is Yuena Cespedes. Yeah, I don't know if he'll get a pay increase, but he's definitely going to get a longer contract than he got last time. Right, okay. So it will be, uh, uh, he'll get a, gr- a greater guaranteed. Yeah, right. He's going to get a long-term deal. He, at least he should. I mean, if, I think if major league teams don't give him a long-term deal this winter, then they must know something about, like, his smoking habit that we don't know. <laughs> yeah, and it would, well, I mean, it doesn't appear to be affecting him now, whatever. Right. It's uh, one of the funny things, is like, Yohannes Cespedes is, like, one of the best athletes in baseball. He's apparently a chain smoker. Uh, but doesn't seem to be an issue at 30. No, and not a uh, not a probably not a great center field defender. No, um, but you know you can live with mediocre defense from your center fielder when he's got a 180 WRC plus. Is there anything that's happened? Is there anything that's happened in the meantime to suggest that? Or, I guess that that what he's doing now is somehow is somehow substantively different than what he was doing when teams decided not to sign him to a multi-year deal. Uh, so I don't think necessarily you'd look at it and be like, oh, this is something he was doing now that he wasn't doing last summer after he had that monster second half of the Mets. But you have more certainty re- relating to the fact that he could sustain this, right? So, like, you had two months of elite performance, essentially, from Cespedes, or six weeks or something like that. Six weeks, it's pretty easy to write off and be like, meh, I don't really think that's real. I think we could look at, like, Rich Hill, right? So Rich Hill had four amazing starts with the Red Sox down the stretch. 
and he got a one-year, $6 million guarantee. Rich Hill is not pitching any better than he did last year. He's actually pitching a little bit worse. Uh, his command has gone the wrong way, but he's still striking a lot of batters out as a starting pitcher. And so now I think teams are looking at Rich Hill being like, man, this could be one of the guys we really want to trade for this summer, and he could get a decent amount of money this winter. Um, not necessarily because he's pitching better or playing better. It's just that they have more confidence that this is a you know, new level of performance or something close to it than they did when it was, you know, four starts from Rich Hill or six weeks of slugging from Jonas Espedes. Right. And because he, I mean, he's never, he's, he's always hit for some amount of power. And of course he was in at least one park um, that, that would have uh, suppressed his power pretty seriously in, in yep. playing in Oakland. Right. And then uh, Detroit and, Boston both have their own peculiar effects, right? I mean, Boston I think suppresses home runs while increasing doubles, but who knows to what degree that would? Uh, well, you, maybe you do. To what degree that would help or hurt you in a Cespedes? Uh, it would, probably wouldn't have a dramatic impact on him because he's not an extreme pull guy. He's not Chris Young. Okay, and then, uh, um, but I guess what he so he's posting he's posting these power numbers that are even that are even better than the ones he posted previously. There's something, there's a, there's a new layer here. There's a new layer. Something's changed mechanically. Something's changed in terms of uh, approach elsewhere. Yeah, I mean, he's basically elevating the ball in a way that he wasn't before, at least not early last year. I mean, Cespedes has always tended more towards the fly balls uh, than, than most hitters, but uh, last year he kind of was running a kind of normal ground ball, fly ball pattern. Um, and then after he got to New York, it, it shifted significantly. I think as uh, Mike Petriello noted in the, the story I linked to, uh, his launch angle went from about 10 degrees to 17 degrees, the average launch angle uh, in September. And then this year, the first two months of the season, it's like over 17 degrees again. So this is essentially the uh, the ball is coming off his bat much more toward the line drive fly ball side of things this year. And his, his ground ball rate is down to 31%, which would be a career low if he sustained it over the whole season. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, you know, balls in the air are good. Balls on the ground are bad. It's like it's an oversimplification, but with a guy like Cespedes, it's absolutely the truth. Is you get way more value out of a ball in the air than he does a ball on the ground. Uh- we know that, uh, I mean, Daniel Murphy is having one of the best seasons. Uh, well, certainly he's having the best season in his career. He's been one of the top hitters in the majors. Yeah. This started for him maybe Mid not even last, last year. Yeah, yeah right. Um, it, and I think that was shortly after Kevin Long had been hired as the hitting coach for the Mets. Yep. Perhaps not coincidentally, Ioannis Cespedes has also been elevating the ball since he joined the Mets. Yep. Do, what do we know about the uh, combination of correlation and causation, Kevin Long, and these improvements by these batters? We don't know a ton. I mean, trying to attribute the change in a player performance to a arrival of a certain coach is tricky because uh, it, you know, so, seems like some coaches have, you know, impacts on on one player but can't impact another player a certain way. Um, and it's not like every Met has started, you know. Some of the Mets of the team haven't started hitting a ton of fly balls. Uh, this hasn't been like a dramatic organization-wide shift since Kevin Long arrived, and like everybody fly balls all the time. Uh, but it does seem that some coaches are good at connecting with or identifying uh, potential improvements for some players to make, and potentially Long is one of these guys who's was just a really good fit for Cespedes and Murphy, uh, maybe in the same way that um, you know. Uh, Clint, uh, the pitching good Ray Searage in, in Pittsburgh was a really good fit for Francisco Liriano, maybe above and beyond what he is for Ryan Vogelsong. Okay, you did it. Did you fulfilled your obligation? Well, if, if people would like to uh, hear more real estate talk with Cameron and Sestuli, you know, maybe 
uh, seek therapy. Yeah, I don't think I want to hear some more of it. I think it worked out okay up to this point, though. Mm, good. Okay, hey, thank you, Dave. You're welcome. That has been Dave Cameron, managing editor of Fangraphs.com. Carson Stooley, this has been Fangraphs Audio. <laughs>